Welcome to Spilling the Scoop with Papa Zoop. We are coming at you live via Zoom yet again on quarantine day 7,956. We got Alex Yogamutz, Guidi Zupancic here in Nashville, Tennessee. And up in Indianapolis, as always, we got Papa Zoop himself. Today we'll be talking about Papa Zoop's journey to the Olympics, being a Greco-Roman wrestler, and all around just being a straight certified badass. Let's see what happens. I don't know about all those certifiable things there, but I think uh, badass is pretty accurate. How's everybody doing? How you doing, Alex? Good. Hanging out Are here you? in Tennessee, where it's about a billion degrees and a thousand percent humidity. So. That's all right. The virus is going away, hopefully, and uh, we're pristine. <laughs> yeah, we we can hope, but I don't think that's the case right now. But yeah. all right. we're gonna have to keep being careful for a while. I mean, it's. Uh, it is what it is. It's the times that we live in. But we're going back tonight oh. into some old times. You're <laughs> yeah, going so back. Uh, you're back where now uh, we just started driving cars. As a matter of fact, if you were in the Olympics back when I was in them, you came in in a chariot. Okay, oh, that's the way you came they, like pulled by horses. V8. It was a V8 chariot, but <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a chariot nonetheless. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know interesting times. It was an interesting part of. Uh, of my life, of Mrs. Zoop's life, because we uh, we got married when she was a young, tender age of 18. I was 20, and uh, we both had a dream, and uh, you know, I pursued the dream in, in, in for the 1980 Olympics, actually, in Greco-Roman wrestling. So, you know, Greco-Roman wrestling, you, if you walk down the street and punch all the Greco-Roman wrestlers that you see in the nose in Nashville, you probably won't punch very many people, okay? So... <laughs> There's not a lot of Greco-Roman wrestlers out there, but where they are, they all gather in mass and uh, and train together. So, uh, and that was even true back in the '80s. Now, of course, you've got you know freestyle Greco-Roman, sambo-style wrestling, three different styles of wrestling. But uh, Olympic in the Olympics, they participate in freestyle and Greco-Roman. So, uh, and that was the case in the 19, in 1980. Now. Training in 1980 for the Olympics was a little bit different because we got through all the training, and it's really a four-year cycle that you go through. Uh, you train, and you go to world championships, you go to national championships, you get into camps, and you go through all this, uh, all this trouble and all this planning. And then in 1980, the United States boycotted the Olympics. They were, uh, they were being held, and they boycotted them because of some difficulties with uh, Russia at the time. So the U.S. didn't go to the Olympics. Everybody ended up going to the White House instead and being thanked by the president. And uh, if you were the final Olympic number one guy, you got to go to the White House. Well, I was in the final Olympic trials, but I wasn't the number one guy. So didn't get to go to the White House, but really uh, had a, a great experience that set me up for 1984. Uh, in 1980, there was a really good coach uh, named George Belshaw, and he was in Montana. So we had to figure out a way to get to Montana to train for several months uh, to give me a real good shot at trying to make the team. So, in the, and this is in, uh, in early 1980s, probably six months before the Olympic trials. So um, several police officers worked out at uh, – worked out at my gym that I had at the time, and they were able to borrow a motorhome. So Mrs. Zoop and I drove to Montana, 
into the mountains, just found a spot in the mountains. I had all my weights with me and everything. It was a dead of winter. We uh, set up the weights outside in, in the snow. Every morning we'd build a big fire. We'd run in the mountains. I'd lift in the outside in the, in the snow and with this big fire. And then I would go down in the afternoon and train at the university uh, with this George Belshaw, this coach that was, uh, was an excellent coach. So we spent three months doing that, uh, you know, just living in the mountains without any other people being around. Oh my it gosh. Was, uh, it was you know, lifting really, weights by campfire, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's I mean, it was totally really, formal. It was very, very different. And, you know, at the time, it seemed extremely difficult. But now looking back on it, what a great experience it was. You know, we, we just enjoyed it immensely. Uh, but I remember one funny story. We, uh, you know, you tried to, they, they had bags that you could throw that were like, you know, like human beings. You could throw these bags to practice your throwing techniques. So I couldn't afford one of those bags. So I went down to this, uh, to this lumber mill that was there where they were, you know, the, it was a bunch of loggers. And uh, the guy stopped me at the gate. Said, what are you, can I do for you? You know, because they just had big trucks coming in and out. To, I said, I need a log that's six foot five. And it, I have to be able to reach around it. And I have to be able to put padding on it. And he says, what are you doing that for? <laughs> And I said, well, I need to be able to throw it. I'd like for it to weigh about 300, 350 pounds. I'd like to be able to throw it so I can practice my throwing techniques. And I told him about the Olympics and blah, blah, blah. He stopped everything that they were doing, went around, found me a log, shaved it down, made it completely smooth, no splinters, no nothing. Uh, helped me find the padding for it. I mean, they almost shut this log mill down but I had, I guarantee you, the only 350-pound, six-foot, four-inch log in the United States that I would throw. And what we would do is we'd shut the lights off in the wrestling room, especially, you know, after practice was over. And it would just be me and this log, and I'd try to throw it 100 times at the end of every practice uh, in the dark. So you really had to have everything perfect because a 300 and some pound log is very unforgiving if you don't throw it correctly. I, mean, I can it, imagine. It lands on you wrong and it brings out memories. Yeah. You know? So, uh, but that was one of the many interesting things that we did and, uh, you know, to, to get ready for that. But then those Olympics were boycotted and really you focused all your attention on the 84 Olympics. And that's when, you know, I think, that's when I had my best shot. That's when I made it to the final Olympic trials. So I got a question for you. Before all of this, as someone who's never been, you know, walking down the street and someone approaches me, is like, hey, you look like you could go to the Olympics. Like, how does that conversation even start? How do you get to a point and at what point in your, um, like, college career of wrestling or uh, do you realize, oh, I've got a shot to go to the Olympics or to someone approach you and say like, hey, you know, if you keep training, um, you know, we think you'd be a great fit for the Olympic team. Like, how did that conversation even go? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. My senior year or my junior year in college at uh, Indiana Central, which is now called the University of Indianapolis, it was a Division II school, very good wrestling program. And I was in the wrestling program there and football program, my freshman, sophomore, junior my senior year, I didn't wrestle for the university. Uh, they, uh, I, I got approached by a coach 
from uh, Michigan. Uh, his name was Dean Rockwell, and he coached the Michigan Wrestling Club. And Dean asked me if I would like to wrestle, be the heavyweight on the uh, Michigan Wrestling Club. That was all in preparation for the Olympics and more specifically for the Greco-Roman side. Dean was the Greco-Roman, was a Greco-Roman coach for the or for Michigan uh, in their state uh, state run so club. So a club team like that, just for context, what is that like a pro level or is no? It, it was an AAU level. It's it's an amateur amateur level, okay. but it's all in preparation for world championships and all of the international uh, games and things that were going on, the Pan Am games, you name it, as far as the, you know, the international level things. Do you get paid to do that? Or is it something that you just like do on your own time? I wish you did. I wish you did get paid. As a matter of fact, interesting story, interesting you asked that, because uh, I made a team to go over and and travel around Europe. Uh, I did that four different times. And Usually when you went there, you'd stay for about a month, you know, when you went there. So after the 80 Olympics in 81, 82, 83, and 84, I made a team to go over there. Well, you had to raise your own money to go on those teams. There was no sponsorship money or anything along those lines. So I would go out and do motivational talks. I would lift up cars and backhoes and and do a motivational talk at the same time and try to raise money that way so that I could, you know, put that toward my team. You even had to buy your own uniforms to work out in and to wrestle in. So I was on kind of a mission, and Mrs. Zoop was working at a, in a law firm, and they were very, uh, very nice to her as well and, and let her take time off and things when I had big tournaments. But one time in particular, I needed to raise $1,000. So a buddy of mine by the name of Randy Savage, and people in Tennessee will know who Randy Savage is, Yeah, it was the macho man, Randy Savage, uh, did the Slim Jim commercials. Well, he called me up and he said, uh, hey, Zuby, uh, I know you got to raise money. Uh, This is a poor impression of him, but uh, (laughs) he's a great guy. He used to come in and work out in in my gym on the south side of Indianapolis when he would come to wrestle in in Indiana. So, uh, you know, he said, you got to come down to Clarksville, Tennessee, because, you know, you can win a thousand bucks. It was the first series of those no hold bars fights where you could do it anything that you wanted to so uh, in order to win so uh i get registered into this fight i take uh carrie and one of the guys that works out of my gym hugh martin i take him down as my corner man well i'm a little nervous because it's inside of a wrestling ring so i'm a little worried that you know, it might be against the amateur rules for me to be in a wrestling ring and making money. So I changed my name for the day to Ed Bovich. I'll never forget the name. I'm Ed Bovich, and I'm going down to to fight in this no-holds-barred fight. So I get there. There's about 26 guys in it. We're in Clarksville and some arena that they have there. I'm not real familiar with Clarksville, but it held like 12 or 14,000 people. So I'm about the fourth fight on the uh, the agenda. We go out there. I'm in the. I go into the ring. Go get ready to get introduced, and I have to fight the town karate guy first. Okay, the Clarksville town karate guy. So they get on. The announcer gets on. And he goes, "Ladies and gentlemen from Clarksville, Tennessee, nine-time black belt. This, that, the other. He's won this. He's broke that. He's done this." <laughs> 
and he's just they give him this huge huge just beautiful introduction i thought i was fighting one of the apostles okay <laughs> i mean i didn't know this guy this guy was so tough i almost just gave it up right there but and then they, they do all that and then they said versus ed bovich from nashville and that was it that was all the intro i got so no love on the intro so anyway, to make a long story short, they, they lead him out, and he's got all of his little karate guys in front of him. They all got their arms on each other and lead him right to the edge of the ring. He gets up on the ring and gets up in the ring. He's got his karate suit on. I've got on a black shirt and a black pair of shorts and my wrestling shoes. And you could do whatever you wanted to do. I mean, it was literally whatever you wanted to do. So we come out, they blow the whistle, and Randy Savage is the referee for this thing. Okay, so okay. he He's blows like the whistle. Interest. He's yeah, well, not really, because I mean it's pretty obvious if you were getting beat up, you know, he was just keeping he was there to keep somebody from getting hurt real bad. Gotcha. So we start, this guy comes out, move right off the bat, wham, he kicks me in the side of the head. Okay, doesn't feel good, doesn't feel very bad. I mean it did. <laughs> You know, he had to raise pretty high to get me. I'm six two, so he had to he had to kick me and he lost a little power. So again, make a long story short, I threw him out of the ring nine times and he had to keep crawling back into the ring. I mean, there was just no way that he wasn't gonna be able to do it. He had all his karate people and the people in the crowd hated Ed Bovich. I'm oh, just saying, no. you know, he was the town hero. And I was from Nashville, like, a, you know, not right there. And I wasn't the town hero by any stretch. So they're all screaming at me. The last time he comes in, I finally knock him out. He goes out. And they put him on a gurney and take him away. And I see him waving. So he's okay a at gurney? the end of it. But then all of a sudden, little old ladies, people are attacking the ring. They're throwing beer bottles at me. They have to bring in, bring in police dogs to take me out of the ring and back into the locker room. Well, remember, I was like the fourth or fifth fight, I think, on the on the, uh, the DS that night. Everybody that was left dropped out. They oh, all said, nice. we're not going to, we're not fighting him. You brought, they told the, the uh, promoter that they brought me in to win the money because I beat the town karate guy and he was kind of the favorite. Yeah. So the promoter came up to me and says, what's it going to take to get you out of here? And I said, and in the meantime, Mrs. Zoop is in the stands. And I mean, I'm, and you know, she's cheering because she can't help it. And she's the <laughs> only one cheering for me, you know. So we go, uh, they, they go get her, bring her down. I corner guys there. I told, I tell the uh, promoter, I said, I need $1,000. I said, that's what I need to, you know, to, to wrestle in Europe. And so he pays me $1,000 to leave. They give me a police escort, and right as we're leaving the building, the announcer comes on, and, and they, he comes on, and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Ed Bovich has been disqualified from the competition, and, you know, and in the meantime, we got in the car, we took off, got us, they got us out of town, but it was one of the most incredible, oh fun God. things that, uh, you know, that I had ever done, so I called my coach in Michigan, you know, at the, at the end. And I said, hey, I, I've got the thousand bucks to go to the thing. He goes, well, what'd you do? And I told him, he's laughing. And he goes, well, what did you tell him? We said, how much is it going to take to get me out of here? He says, he, he would have paid you $10,000 to leave because they were 
going to stop the whole thing, you know, for yeah. the night. And uh, I said, well, I, I didn't think about that. I just told him a thousand dollars. And he goes, shrewd, Zupachik, <laughs> shrewd. <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess you're right. So, but I came by it honestly, and I got the thousand, got to go to Europe and wrestle. And, uh, you know, the, the, the steps that you have to take to, to, you know, to make an Olympic team, it just, it's so incredibly difficult to do. Your focus has to be there. You have to do it like it's your only job. You can't have any interruptions. You can't have any distractions. And again, back then you had to pay your own way. So we moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota for a year because that's where the hotbed of Greco-Roman wrestling was. And I had an opportunity to train with a lot of great wrestlers in that, in that uh, Minneapolis area. Again, Mrs. Zoop, God bless her. She went to work in a law firm and, and really supported us, supported me, you know, eating and sleeping and, and drinking wrestling for the whole time. We had, I'll never forget it, uh, my best friend, uh, Gary Edwards, he and his son drove us up to Minneapolis. We had a mattress, a card table, two chairs, and all of our clothes. And we got an apartment, it was an efficiency. We had the mattress on the floor, had the clothes piled in the corner, had a card table, and every night, and people say stuff like this, you think, well, they're exaggerating a little bit. No exaggeration. We had no extra money. Either we ate liver or we ate tuna every single night. That was our, our, our protein source was either liver or tuna every night. Delightful. And then once a week, we would break down and go to a special night at White Castle. And we get a few sliders. Did you get a crave cake? Oh, that was like the big treat. I mean, that was the biggest treat of all. And it seemed like every time we got into financial difficulties, right when we were getting ready to not be able to pay our rent or something, some Slovenian people that, that they all read about it in the Slovenian newspaper because Zupancic is Slovenian, and uh, you know they were rooting for me to to try to make it. We get twenty dollars or we'd get $50. One time a guy stopped through uh, Indianapolis, a guy named uh, Shunkweiler, and he was a fan of the Indianapolis, you know, the Slovenian people in Indianapolis. He came, took me out to dinner, and gave us $500, which was, you know, like hitting the lottery. It was so unbelievable. It helped us be able to stay there during that whole time, along with Mrs. Zoop working, uh, we were able to, you know, continue to go through and, and finally get to the point where we, you know, went through all of the different series of trials and got to the final trials. And, uh, you know, that, that's where, uh, you know, there were three of us in a round robin and I ended up being uh, one of the other two guys. And uh, the one guy that did go to the Olympics name was Blatnik. He ended up winning a gold medal. Oh, wow. So uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a greatest experience of my life. And, Really, uh, from a from a sports standpoint, when I came back to Indianapolis after that, I'll never forget because, you know, you pour all of your heart and your soul and your guts into something like that. Uh, when I lost, you know, when I when I didn't didn't uh, get the, the first position, I drove back from they were in the the, the trials were in Grand Rapids, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
we drove back. I had on the singlet. I just got came off the mat, went, got in the car, and drove back home. Well, we had leased our house out, so we didn't have anywhere to drive back home to. So we went to my mom and dad's house and stayed there for uh, like three weeks until our, our house, our regular house, the lease ran out on it, and uh, we got to move back into it. So it was three weeks or a month right around that time. But I remember for those three weeks, I didn't say one word to anybody yeah. about anything. And, you know, every once in a while, I call one of the guys that were in the same position, a different weight class. I'd say, how are you coming on, you know, how are you doing with everything? They were all, we were all in the same boat. It was so devastating to lose and put all of that effort in and then just to walk off and it'd be over. I mean, it was, uh, but during that time when we came back, the Indianapolis Colts had moved to Indianapolis. You know, they were either going to go to Phoenix or they were going to go to Indianapolis. Well, unbeknownst to anybody, they came to Indianapolis. Uh, I sent my a resume in to, to be uh, the strength and conditioning coach. Sent it with a uh, courier service. Courier took it. They refused it. The coach didn't want it. And the courier brought it back to me. He said he wouldn't take it. Sent him on day number two. Same thing. Take it to the head coach. Frank Cush was his name. He was from Arizona. Famous college coach. And he was coaching the Colts. They had just came in here from uh, Baltimore. Just first year moved here. Takes it second day. Keep going. Third day, fourth day, tenth day. Frank Cush won't take this resume. Finally, the secretary that took the resume from the courier, she said, will you at least come out here and take it from this guy so he quits coming here? Yeah. And so Cush comes screaming out there, snags the recipe out, or the, uh, the resume. <laughs> recipe. <laughs> the resume. You see where my mind's always on eating something. Okay? <laughs> but they grabs the uh, resume, reads it, calls me that night. The next morning I go there to interview for an NFL coaching job. I walk in, they've already got a strength coach, but he's also the special teams coach and he's a, and he's the tight end coach. So back in, in those early days in the eighties, you didn't, everybody didn't have a strength coach. Now every team has five, you know I mean? It's incredible how many, how that has spread and really grown, but he brought me in, interviewed me. He said, you know, the, the amount of money that he was going to pay me, I'll never forget what it was, but I'm not going to mention exactly. But it was, it was not a lot of money to get excited about, you know. And he says, you're going to be working about 70 hours or 80 hours a week. And I said, that's okay. So I still had the gym in Indianapolis. Carrie uh, took over uh, running the gym. And I went to work for the Colts for the first year up until the last game and on the last game, Frank Cush, the head coach, quits. And he's driving away in a driving rainstorm. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the last game of the year, and he quits right before. I walk outside wanting to say goodbye to him. He's the only one I know, you know. He rolls his window down about that far, sticks his lips out of the window. It's pouring down rain. He goes, you'll be fine. You're a hard worker. You're going to do real good. You'll do great in the NFL. Just rolls the window back up. So I'm standing there waving like a little kid in the rain, you know, walk back in, everybody, all the coaches get fired, myself included. And then the new coach, Rod Dauhauer comes in 
and re-interviews coaches and re-interviewed me and gave me my first really meaningful contract in the NFL after that. But, uh, you know, all of those things, all of that time training, you know, the 80 experience and then the 84 experience, all of those things prepared me for that moment. All of those things prepared me for that time when I got my chance to shine in the NFL. And then I went through eight different head coaches in the NFL. You know, every time the new head coach would come in, all the coaches would get fired. Some would get rehired. Most wouldn't. I was fortunate enough to get rehired eight different times by, you know, head coaches and did that for 16 years before I went into the front office as a senior VP of sales and marketing for a dozen years. So it, uh, you know, my career was, uh, was all really started by, you know, what I did in wrestling and what I did in, in football in college. And, uh, you know, now I'm, you know, the, the uh, vice president of, of sales and service for Dean Electrical Mechanical with the owner being the same best friend that took me to Minnesota in the first place. So it all kind of went full circle and, you know, is where I am right now. But uh, very interesting time. Uh, you know, when you had to make your money, I mean, I had to go give a talk. If, so, if somebody was going to pay $100 for me to come and talk to their company, you know, I would drag cars there and weights there and put on a big demonstration, have people come up and try to choke me. I'd have them break blocks on my chest with a sledgehammer. You know, what this had to do with wrestling, I don't know. <laughs> but it was something that people were, were worth paying for it to get them in to get them motivated get them psyched up but yeah. I, you know a lot of different funny stories on on doing those kinds of demonstrations and events and then once we started with the Colts every year we would do a thing called Zoops Lift for Kids where we would lift up backhoes and stuff and you know John uh, your husband and uh, Jake and Katie they were all they'd all sit on the backhoe and then I'd lift it up and down and we try to lift like five million pounds in two and a half hours. And, you know, we'd add it, add it up as it went along. It was live on TV and the radio. But, uh, so we do that every year. So it, it all kind of, everything kind of laid out in front of me. And I just kind of kept trying to take things on yeah. as they came. So. So I've got a couple of questions for you. It seems right. like, you know, you spent so much time training in such an intense way and giving up so much, but also, you know, gaining so much from people that you were working with. Um, and then for two milestones, you had 1980 Olympics that were um, boycotted. And then you had the 1984 Olympics, which, you know, unfortunately you were the alternate. What was it like, um, it, like, like the way that you felt, the way that it kind of impacted you not having the chance to go in the 80s when like nobody was going, you boycotted it. And then in 84, when, um, you know, just barely missing it, what was what were your mindset in both situations and like what, um, you know, honestly, which one's worse, like not getting the opportunity to even give it a shot or, you know, getting that shot, giving it all that you have and, you know, coming up a little short. Well, I think in 80, it was a more of a way outside shot. I wasn't mentally nor physically prepared uh, to go all the way in 1980, but in 84, I was. Yeah. So, you know, from that time span when uh, they, they canceled the Olympics in 80, it was a it was a pipe dream at that point, but then '84 was very realistic that I could possibly make it. I was always 
ranked as one of the top three in the country. So, you know, it was always going back and forth, you know, as far as your, your ranking went. Uh, ranking didn't really matter that much because there was no money. There was no sponsorship. There was, you know, nobody paid any of your way. You had to figure out how to pay your own way. And I remember several times going to Europe and I had $35 to go to Europe, you know, for a month. And, uh, you know, we stayed in barracks and, and different people's homes and things like that. And in some of the countries that we went to, and a lot of times we stayed in, uh, you know, very often we went mostly to Eastern Bloc countries when it was still communist. So, you know, that experience was, you know, really different than if you go over, you know, to Hungary and to Budapest and uh, you go to Bulgaria and places like that, or even the, the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, into Russia, it's uh, very much different now. But, you know, I think in answer to your question, whenever you do something that you put all, because you, you, there's no other way around it, mm-hmm. you've got to put all your eggs into that one basket. If you want any chance of doing it, you've got to put all your eggs in one basket. Whenever you put all your eggs in one basket and you lose, then all of a sudden you don't have any more eggs. Yeah. And your basket is all smashed and turned over. Whoops, and you've got to figure out what you're going to do from there. You know, yeah. and I mean, luckily, I had, you know, Carrie, my wife, that was, was, you know, right, obviously, behind me and propping me up and, and helping me keep going during those times. Have a great family. Before we had any kids, you know, I'd still say we had a great family, even after I had our kids. But I'm saying... <laughs> We had a great family, a great support system from my parents, from my wife's parents, uh, you know, from my siblings. They all supported, uh, you know, the effort. But even with all those people supporting it, uh, and, and even with Carrie supporting it as much as she did, you always found yourself at the end of the day alone. Yeah. And when you were alone, you all of those feelings all of that work, all of those things, you know, they just, they just pounced on you and weighed a million pounds. And it wasn't until several years afterwards when I had time to reflect on it, because at the time it was a very negative experience to lose, you know. But then when you, when you think back on it and you think about the journey that you were on and all of those things that you did and training in the mountains and eating the liver and eating the, you know, the tuna and, and fighting through all of the adversity that you had to fight through to get to where you went and then to still not win. That experience, that journey was what it was all about because that journey prepared me for every other journey in life. You know, it prepared me for having kids after we've been married 12 years. It prepared me for helping them try to train and be the best that they could be at whatever it is that they were going to do. Now, thankfully, they were all blessed with their wife's athletic, with my wife's athletic ability. So it wasn't a tall order for me to help them get a little bit further. But uh, honestly, you know, it set the stage for every success that I would have the rest of my life. And it also helped me realize how important it was to help other people get to their success points. It's like, you know, when you teach a yoga class, you want to see people come out of there with a smile on their face, knowing that they got something out of it, that they they got better. They felt better about themselves because of what you showed them. 
by being a strength and conditioning coach and by owning a gym and by working with people one-on-one, -on -one, if you changed one person's life in 20 years, it was worth it. But, you know, you obviously I'm feeling emotional right now. Well, you, you, it, it really, it's, it's an emotional thing because yeah. even what I do today, which is sales, you know, I'm in sales, it's, it's about believing so much in your product and believing so much in your company that when you sell something to somebody, you're actually putting your name on it too. And it's not a fluff. It's not a, it's not a, you know, you're not trying to deceive anybody. You're working a hundred percent as honest as you could possibly be. And you're really putting your soul out there because that's the only way you're ever going to make it. If you're doing something like training for the Olympics, all eggs in the basket. And I'm still not any smarter. I still put all my eggs in one basket, you know, when I went to the business side of the Colts, the strength and conditioning side, to the business side, to the Dean where I work now, uh, all the eggs are in that basket. You know, I don't have a couple eggs here, a couple eggs there, a few over here. Got them all right there. And that's where they're going to be. That's the only way I can operate. I've yeah. got to be operating at 100% full bore, you know, moving forward, or, uh, or I'm frozen. You know, and I can't operate. It's that three-week period I went through when, you know, when I got back home from, from uh, uh, Michigan where I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't know if I was ever going to talk to anybody again. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was that bad a feeling, which I don't wish that on anybody, but I hope it for everybody. You yeah. Know, I hope everybody understands what I'm talking about and can appreciate that feeling with, whatever it is that they're passionate about in their lives. Yeah. Oh man. That's a, that's a, yeah. Like I, obviously it's terrible and that you lost and that you came up short, but the fact that you're able to like look at that experience and take the good and recognize the purpose that it served for you in your life is, is huge. Cause if you're not able to do that, then you're right. Are you going to ever talk to someone? Like, what are you going to move forward and do? Are you going to just stay in that time of your life? Hopefully not. Hopefully you take that and use it for exactly like you did to make other people's lives better, to continue to find some sort of fulfillment for yourself um, in your life, which obviously you did. Um, but yeah, it's like, how do you, that's such a insane kind of thing to come out of on and end up better, you know? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's all about, and, and I think, you know, you realize this in, in doing what you do. Uh, and John, you know, your husband, he, he, uh, he has the same, same kind of a mindset. It's about setting goals for yourself. It's about setting goals, reaching goals, resetting goals. Mm -hmm. And you just keep doing that over and over and over and over again. And you've got short-term goals, you've got long-term goals, but you've got to have goals because if you don't have goals, you become like a pinball and you just get knocked through life. Yeah. If you've got goals, you're, you're a meaningful specific. If you don't have goals, you're a wandering generality. And I feel that means, like, you know, it's, it's, go ahead. Right. I feel like I've kind of under, understood that recently, um, you know, because I teach yoga, because I'm a personal trainer, because I'm trying to be some sort of entrepreneur, but I don't really know exactly what I want that to look like. So I've taken time recently to kind of pinpoint, uh, coming down off that pinball analogy here to decide like, what is it that I want to do? And like, how do I want to like, 
put my eggs in that basket because before it was like, well, I don't know. So I'm like, you know, floating around, not finding really any fulfillment out of anything, just knowing that I'm working my butt off doing all these random things and not reaching any sort of goal or fulfillment because I don't know what it is I want to do. So I, I feel like I understand that in a real um, level personally right now, because that's where I'm at. It's like, okay, we need to zero in and decide what is the goal? What is the next move? How do we get there? Quit fiddle farting around here <laughs> and you know, well, and, and that's, you know, that's a very difficult thing, a realization to come to. You've got to decide what it is that you want to do. And then working toward doing that every single day and making that kind of a commitment, that's, you know, very difficult to do. And it's, it's very hard. difficult to decide what it is that you want to do. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's not, not something that somebody hands you a piece of paper and says, here's what you're supposed to do. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a good, uh, it's, it's a, it's a tough time, but it's also a time that you'll look back and appreciate the fact that there was that mystery time. There was that, I'm not sure what I'm going to do time. There was that unsurety as you finally realize what it is that drove you. Okay. What drives you every day? What gets you out of bed early in the morning? with bounce in your step? What makes you stay up late at night thinking of better ways to do things? And I know you, and I know the way that I, that I operate and the way I think. If I can bring somebody a step up better than they are, if I can help them, because you're a coach, okay? You're a trainer, you're a coach. That's what I was. Even when I moved to the business side, you're still about setting up a situation that is best for all parties. You want something that you want, you want to be able to set up a situation where everybody wins. And it sounds like a cliche, you know, the win-win situation, but it's a reality. Yeah. You want people to feel like they're always winning when they're working with you. You want people to feel like they're always taking a step forward when they're working with you. Well, if they you don't, they're not going to want to work towards that specific goal that's been set, right? No, right. And you want them to ache to come and see you every day. You want them to be, you know, that that's the best part of their day. That's mm-hmm. the part of their day. And you know, you know, you, you, some people are like that. You just, you just know when you meet some people, you're, you enjoy being in the same room with them mm-hmm. because they bring the best out of you. They make you feel good about yourself. They make you feel good and positive about the situation that you're in, yeah. you know, and that's, that's what you want to be. And that's, where you'll find your niche. I mean, when I was your age, I was fighting in no old barred fights to make a thousand dollars, you know, <laughs> but, uh, as, as Ed Bovich, which uh, he became quite legendary in Clarksville. I guess, <laughs> sure. But uh, it was, uh, you know, it was those types of experiences that really helped me get, you know, to doing the things that I'm doing today and helped me feel good about, getting there. So. so I've got a couple more questions about your time in the Olympics and or with the Olympic training program. Um, do you want the serious one or the not so serious one first? You shoot them any way you like them, kiddo. All right, let's start with the serious one and then we'll hit the not so serious one and then go to the audience questions. How about that? Okay. All right. So going through that program for years and training as strenuously as you did, you know, in the mountains of Montana, um, did you ever experience any injuries and, you know, how did you 
if you did or didn't, how did you recover? Um, like, how did you, how did you, what type of recovery program did you have for your body after putting so much stress on it on a daily basis? Well, I played, uh, I played football in college. So really my wrestling career started and it, and it mirrored my football career. I played football in college all the way through my senior year. I had six knee operations during that time. So every time I had a knee operation, I had to bring it back as quickly as possible. Early on, I tore my ACL. Well, then they didn't know how to fix an ACL. Mm -hmm. And my doctor's advice to me was make your legs as strong as they can be so that you can, you can hold your knee sound in place. And you know, it, you're, you're not going to have the ACL because we don't know how to fix them. Yeah. So I worked out very hard. I used to, I remember I'd go to, go to school, go to practice and uh, do my homework or whatever I needed to do. And then a lot of times I'd go work out at 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning at a place called Hoffmeister's Gym. It was in downtown Indianapolis in a bad part of town. I mean, it was like Rocky. I mean, there were, I would pick up a, a guy that was passed out and move him out of the way and cover him with newspapers in the gym oh while God. I did my workout. You know, I mean, it was, uh, it was that type of a situation. So, you know, you had to really drive yourself. You had to take it upon yourself there weren't eight or 10 trainers. There weren't, uh, you know, there weren't doctors or physical therapists that were following you around. Uh, you know, they gave you the recommendation of what to do. And a lot of it was, you know, on your own, you had to go out, you had to push yourself. I mean, I pushed cars, I pushed trucks. I did so many different things to try to make my knees and, and my legs stronger to the point where finally at the end of my career, when I you know, was out of it for several years, I had to get a knee replacement, which allowed me to do all those things over again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, at the doctor's dismay, I might add, you know, he doesn't, uh, doesn't want me to do that. I'm sure it's gonna, you know, the, the life of my knee won't be as long because now I'm not dealing with my stuff, I'm dealing with man-made stuff. So, uh, but it's what I do, it's, it's what I have to do to make myself feel good. I have to be able to push myself like that. I have to be able to handle those heavy weights. I have to be able to do things that, you know, quite honestly, other 64 year old guys aren't done. And uh, that's, whether that's ego, whether that's stubbornness, whatever it is, I prefer to think it's a bunch of those things. I don't know that there's a word for it, but you know, it's competitiveness. It's not allowing yourself to drop backwards. It's, it's all of those all of those drivers and, and emotions that you have. And, you know, that's the, that's the way that, that I get by. That's the way that I survive. And, you know, that's what you had to do whenever you had an injury, you kind of had to push through it. You know, I remember dislocating my fingers and I'd go out and wrestle and my finger would dislocate. I would push the guy off, relocate my finger and go right back in. And, and you know, I'd just get enough space where I could pull it back in. And, you know, then we'd tape it up at uh, during the break and, you know, you'd go back at it, but that was then, and this is now. You know, yeah. they uh, they don't they don't do it quite like that now. It's uh, thought of it a little bit differently, but that's the way you did it then, and that's you know that's what I subscribe to. So, when you weren't injured, did you have a recovery regimen that you tried to use to help keep you healthy, to help keep your muscle muscles kind of rejuvenating in between workouts? I think uh, you know I 
if I wasn't playing football, when I when football season stopped, one week later, we had the it was called the Little State Tournament, where Notre Dame, Purdue, IU, all of the all of the wrestling schools in Indiana, we had a tournament then. Well, a lot of the guys that were at all those other schools weren't playing football too. It was pretty unusual to have a two-sport athlete in the Division II, you know, ranks. But, you know, football helped pay my way through college. I had a football scholarship, so I was fortunate enough to have that. So that was my my baby to pay my way through. But I only had one week to get in shape for that huge tournament where you had to wrestle like nine times, you know. And, I mean, uh, and football shape and wrestling shape, way different, way different, you know. Football, you go as hard as you can for six seconds, five seconds, four seconds. Then you rest 45 seconds, and then you go again, you know. And sometimes the ball is getting run over you. Sometimes it's to the other side of the field. Sometimes you're not going as hard. Sometimes you're going real hard. So it's a different kind of shape than, than wrestling shape is. So when I would get little nagging injuries or when I would, you know, recovery-wise, I would lift during football season so that I could be ready wrestling season when it was over. I'll never forget when I first came to the NFL, and I saw the type of workouts they were doing, and I compared them to what, you know, I was doing in wrestling, and it was like, I couldn't believe it that, that, you know, they were professional athletes and were doing what they were doing. Well, we quickly, uh, you know, raised up the the, the uh, workout uh, schedule in, in, you know, at the Colts at that time, back in the uh, you know, back in 1984, when they first came to town, all of a sudden we were doing a lot more things, bought a lot more equipment, got a lot. In the off season, we started paying the athletes for being there in the off season. And then we were working out from two weeks after the season to two weeks before the season started. And, uh, you know, now they have a, a lot of time off. We were working out all of that time and, and really, uh, and, and it proved to be very valuable for the, you know, for the teams. And, all the teams were starting to learn that they had to do that. Then. Mm-hmm. All right. Time for the question I'm really excited about. Which was harder to throw, the karate man from Clarksville or the 300-pound uh, log in Montana? Well, the 300-pound <laughs> log didn't have any emotion. And, uh, <laughs> when, you know, I mean, it, it, didn't, it didn't make you mad or, or, you know, it never swung back. I feel at, like it would make me mad. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it landed on you wrong, and that wasn't very comfortable, but it, it didn't laugh or do anything. I guess the, the guy from uh, Clarksville, his situation was, I mean, and I'll never forget, it was so emotional and so your adrenaline was going so hard. She had, you know, all of these people, you know, the, the 10,000 or so people, screaming and yelling and not one thing that they were screaming and yelling was in my favor as Ed Bovich. Okay. I bet Mama Zoop was. Yeah, yeah, she was the only one. And at the end of it, she was like Peter in the Bible. You know, where he goes, I don't I don't know who he is. I don't know the guy. I'm sure she was. She doesn't admit to it, but she had to for her own safety. Survival, yeah. But uh, you know, I mean I'll never forget the look out of one particular old lady. I'll never forget the look as she was screaming obscenities at me and threw a Pabst Blue Ribbon bottle oh at me, God. you know, while I was in the ring. You know, it was like, really? This is happening? And this, you know, this is where, this is what it's coming to. 
But, uh, and then when he brought the police dogs up, everybody kind of backed off for you. And he kind of went out the back door. But uh, no, I think uh, whenever you do something live like that, uh, it's a, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit more unpredictable and there's a lot more emotion involved. Fair, fair. Uh, All right. So here are our audience questions. First one, why did you not pursue a career in ultimate fighting? Clearly you had a talent for it. You know, I, and three years later, I probably would have, uh, had I not gotten involved in the NFL. And that's just when that was starting to become popular. They could First, they were no-holds-barred fights. That was what I was talking about. That's where you could do anything. And then they, they started getting into tough man contests. And you're too young to even remember those. But they had tough man contests. And those were the same type of thing. But they had a few rules. And then they got into the ultimate fighting that, that they have now. And they've got it's – a, it's a regular sport. I mean, they've got their, their rules and their – you know, you have, to, you have to adhere to all the different rules. In the beginning – wasn't like that as much. So I missed, I really missed the window for that. Again, and, and I probably would have taken that route. The other thing that, uh, you know, people have asked me is why didn't you go into pro wrestling? Because when I lived in Minnesota, uh, the guy that ran Minnesota and really the better part of the country, his name was Vern Gagne. And uh, he had, you know, he was the head of all the, the pro wrestling and he supported Minnesota wrestling because uh, and amateur wrestling because he was a great amateur wrestler as well. So, you know, there was a chance to go into the pro ranks and do that. But when you were an amateur wrestler back then, you felt like the pros were, you know, it wasn't real. And, you know, you, you just didn't want to be associated with that because you didn't feel like it was honorable and wasn't, you know, because there's a lot of entertainment with that. Now those guys are tremendous athletes. They do tremendous different things in the ring, but they're, you know, it's different than amateur wrestling. I mean, it was, uh, it was just a different thing than the Olympic spirit and that type of thing. It was, it was a big, huge entertainment value. And, uh, you know, didn't really feel like I wanted to go into that. My lucky break really was having a wife like I had that supported me so well and allowed me to make these turns and, and, and changes in my in my career and having great friends, you know, like the, the, the uh, best friend that drove me there, Gary Edwards, that drove me to, you know, to Minnesota with his son. Uh, somebody always stepped in and helped me at the right time when I needed to help. And, you know, that being said, when, when I had those opportunities like that, it guided me right to the Colts when they came to Indianapolis because getting that job was the only thing that kind of sat on the same level as the Olympics in my mind, mm -hmm. you know, to be a one of 32 coaches and in, uh, in, in the NFL, it wasn't even 32 teams back then. So, but uh, you know, it was, uh, it was an honor to be a part of that fraternity of coaches. And uh, you know, that, that, that really drove me to, to get as good as I could get in that position. Awesome. Yeah, no, that makes, makes total sense. All right. Well, the, the next time we talk, we're going to be talking about you, young lady. We're going to be talking about yoga mutts and everything that it stands for and all the, the ideas and the, the yeah. systems and things that you're trying to put into place. Yep. Yeah, I got some big old ideas coming. So it's been going a lot better. So I'm excited to, to do a full episode on it.
Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's an episode that's starting your life as a, as a, a trainer, a coach, and, uh, you know, a, a sensei <laughs> out there. Cool. So, I think uh, we got one more question. If you're up all for right. it. Yeah, I'm up for it. All right. You have obviously done different jobs on the spectrum. Do you think that there is a, this is what I'm supposed to do moment you've ever had in your life? You know, I think my this is what I'm supposed to do moment, the common denominator for every job that I've ever had. From working in, uh, in our own gym, you know, that we own, that we had a couple of them, working in my own gym to, uh, to the Olympic training, to the, uh, you know, to the Colts on the strength conditioning side, to the business side of the team, to Dean Electrical Mechanical where I am now, it's always been a people business, okay? It's always been working with people. It's always been finding the way to find that common denominator, to find that point where you join people together under the same effort, for the same reasons, with the same goals in mind, to make them better, make their situation better, to make you better, and hopefully and preferably, you could do all of those things at the same time. And I think that's probably what's driven me and been the con common denominator in any success that I've had has always been to try to work with people so that, you know, people feel good about working with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it having, you know, a coach or a manager or really just anyone that you look up to, to work with it, it makes you want to work harder because you want to like, when you want to make them happy, but it's like you're, you really feel like you're a part of this team, for lack of a better analogy, like you're a part of a team that is trying to win said goal. And sure. especially if you're a competitive person, that lights a fire under you. So that makes total sense to me. No question. And I mean, I think it's something that uh, when it doesn't make sense to you anymore, it's either time to change or it's time to get to go into a different, you know, into a different profession. Because yeah. as long as you're motivated by challenging yourself and challenging other people, and you get a real good feeling about seeing somebody succeed out there, even more than yourself, you know, when you see somebody else do a great job because of your efforts, that should be just as good, if not a better feeling for you than if it were just you you know, yeah. being able to succeed. I mean, I, I've learned a lot from a philanthropic uh, standpoint in working with not only the Colts, but with Dean. Uh, you know, our owner is a very philanthropic person. It derives more pleasure from doing good things for other people than he does for himself. He doesn't, he doesn't want or need anything. He tries to give other people a break, tries to give other people you know, legs to stand on and, and help when they need it and is very philanthropic in that, uh, from that standpoint. And I think you can not only do that with money, but you can do it with effort. You know, right now you're at the point where you're going to be doing it with effort. You know, the money will come. Yeah. It always does. But your efforts are what really define how you're going to be when you do have money. Yeah. Yeah, so. no, that's definitely true. I think the effort having the effort on the front end, I think is really great. I think it shows what I'm 
what I've experienced so far, I feel like people are buying into what I'm able to put out there because they see how hard I'm working, how hard I'm hustling, how when they take a class, like they, they hear it and they feel it in my, my speech, how into this yoga flow, like how into this class I am for them. So, you know, I hope that I'll be able to carry that into the next portion of uh, my career. Um, should the money come, let's hope, <laughs> let's hope mm-hmm. yoga mutts one day makes a profit, but <laughs> we'll hang out in the red for a hot second and just give it a lot of heart. <laughs> yep, that's right. You know, yeah, and even though he's not a real character, although I do think he is, Yoda said, there is no try. Just do or don't do. Yeah. One of the two. Do or don't do. No try. Just do it or don't do it. But you got to make your mind ahead of time that you're going to do it mm-hmm. or you you will always not do it. Unless you make your mind up ahead of time that you're going to do it, there's going to be enough barbs and, and spears thrown at you that you'll not get it done unless you've got it stuck in your mind that no matter what, you're going to get it done. Yeah. And I know you and I know the kind of person you are and my money's on you. So, oh, yeah. There you go. Oh, John John wants to uh, correct your Star Wars quote. He says, okay. do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Same He's thing. I He's just paraphrase it a little bit. Yo, <laughs> hey, just tell John Yoda and I are good friends. He lets me get away with it. You hear okay? that, John John? <laughs> Awesome. Well, this was awesome. I love always, you know, hopping on here and chatting with you and hearing that story. That's the first time I really heard um, the story about you training for the Olympics and that whole process. So thanks for sharing and got to do this again. Not a problem. Hey, it's always a blast when we get together and uh, we'll see the good folks that are out there. Listen, tell your friends about it and let's uh, send in some ideas of people you want to hear. We can call everybody. Okay. We can call the president of the United States and potentially get him on here with us. I don't <laughs> yeah. know about that one, but I'm throwing Okay. We'll see if how that goes. Want to hear somebody in particular, uh, a sports uh, a figure out there, send in requests and we'll see what we can do about it. All we can do is ask. That's it. There you go. Well, thank you, Alex, for being there. John, thanks for being in the background and uh, love you guys. We'll see you next week. Love you. See you. All right. See you.